Hi, and welcome to the Canada's History Podcast. My name is Joanna Dawson, and today I'm joined by Joe Scanlon, Professor Emeritus and Director of the Emergency Communications Research Unit at Carleton University. Joe specializes in the sociology of disaster and will be telling us about a research project he recently completed about Titanic disaster songs. Thanks for joining us, Joe. No problem. So I know you've had an extensive career, but can you tell us a bit about your work and what it means to study the sociology of disaster? Yeah, well, what happened about shortly after the Second World War, some Americans whom I later studied with, Henry Corndelli and Russell Dines, opened a disaster research unit at that point at Ohio State University and then later moved to Delaware where I studied with them. And they got interested in how people and organizations behaved in emergency incidents and, and they, uh, later, they defined disasters as events that disrupt communities as opposed just like an air crash is not necessarily a disaster. It may be a tragic event, but it doesn't necessarily disrupt a community. So I got kind of interested in that. I began originally studying rumors for the Defense Department, believe it or not. But some of the rumors originated with, with air crashes and tornadoes and snowstorms and floods and mudslides. So I decided it would be fun to study that. So I spent a year with Dines and Quarantelli at Delaware. And then that expanded my research. And I got interested. One of the the things that we know is that generally people behave incredibly well in disasters. In fact, they don't panic. They don't get confused. They don't loot. They don't suddenly turn into criminals. In fact, mm-hmm. in, a, in a widespread destructive incident, most initial search and rescue and transport to hospital is done by survivors. Police, fire, and ambulance play virtually no role in initial response. And that... That's pretty well established now, but that's not what the media tells, is not what the movies tells, is not what novels tell us, but some of my colleagues think that's what folk songs tell us. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to actually look at some folk songs, and the first ones we looked at were songs about mass death incidents in mines in Nova Scotia, and we found that on the whole, they give a pretty accurate picture. It's a limited picture. They focus around the actual incident itself and the initial response, but what they talk about by and large is accurate then i thought it'd be kind of fun to look at titanic Mm -hmm. just because i guess we thought there'd be a lot of songs we actually found 43 folk songs about titanic in seven languages Um, and we found some more since that but we published an article in canadian folk music which which describes what we found and by and large we found the same thing most of the songs portray pretty well accurately what happened they portray the captain as reckless and they portray the uh to some extent, the absence of enough lifeboats. They portray people standing aside for the most part, and they mention the Carpathia coming to the rescue and so on. They miss a few things. For example, only a few of the songs mention that there weren't enough lifeboats in Titanic, even if they'd been full. Only some of them mention that the lifeboats that were launched were often half full, and none of them mentioned that only one lifeboat came back to rescue survivors in the water. The others just let people drown. So there are parts of it that are left out. But on the whole, they're pretty accurate. The one thing that they don't mention is the fact that the 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 higher class you're in on the ship, if you were first class, second class, whatever, the better chance you have to survive. Mm-hmm. Because, in fact, the bulk of the survivors came from the upper classes, first class. Mm-hmm. And that, that really isn't portrayed. In fact, one of them suggests, you know, rich and poor met their fate together, which simply wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And uh, But on the whole, it's a pretty accurate story of what happened. The, the one thing that's controversial still, of course, is that a lot of the songs say that the band played Nearer My God to Thee, 
and there's no evidence of that. In fact, the, the last survivor on Titanic was a second wireless officer. I, his name was Brian. I think his first name was Harold. But anyway, he, he remembers them playing Autumn, which is actually in the Titanic songbook, and he was swept away hanging onto an oarlock as the ship went down and could hear them playing a song he didn't know, and the last tune he heard them play was Autumn. Hmm. And uh, so the, it's really debatable if they actually played Near My God to Thee, but virtually every song that mentions the band mentions Near My God to Thee. So that's one of the myths that survives. Right. So, and they don't. The interesting thing is, we found songs in Finnish, and Norwegian, and Swedish, and Old Dutch, and Portuguese, and Spanish. But although there were a lot of Italians aboard, we found no Italian songs, and we found nothing in French, uh, and nothing in Gaelic. And the ship did pick up uh, Irish immigrants in Ireland on the before it headed across the Atlantic. So there may be other stuff we haven't found yet, but we did find, as I said, seven lines. Oh, we found Yiddish, and there's one song that's a tribute. I don't know if you heard her, Ida Strauss, but they were the very wealthy family, and she refused to leave her husband, and she 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 ended up dying when the ship went down. And there's a a, a song in Yiddish that's a tribute to her. And of course, most of the stuff is based on what the media reported, and the media reported largely interviews with the wealthy survivors. Right. So it's not surprising that they ignored the lower classes. I suspect, but I don't know, that the Finnish songs came as a result of letters from the Finnish survivors sent home, and that led to a somewhat different picture in some of the Finnish songs than the rest of the songs. So why do you think it is that folk songs are telling a more accurate representation than, than in other we sources? We don't know for sure. I think to some extent it's because folk singers perform in front of audiences that are knowledgeable. Like when we did the mining songs, a lot of the songs have been sung in Cape Breton, and the people there know what happens in mine disasters, and some of them were by artists that actually had mining experience. So in that case, our guess was that, you know, they face the audience. People that write movies don't have to stand in front of an audience that, that has seen the Titanic sink, right. for example. Right. For Titanic, I don't know. It's It's hard to tell because, but there were survivors, and there was a lot of, stories about what happened. But I think, by and large, a lot of folk singers write about the incidents. The thing that's hard to explain is that the source is the media. So if the media get it wrong, you'd expect folk songs to get it wrong, and that doesn't seem to follow. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we're doing, Heather Sparling, who's an ethnomusicologist at Cape Breton, has started doing it, we're, we're, and we're hoping to get more funding. We're interviewing the artists and asking them why they wrote songs about particular events and why they wrote it the way they did and I hope to ask them whether they believed in the myths, and if if so, how come the myths don't appear in the songs? So why is it they get it right? And we hope to find more about that by talking to artists. And that's just nicely underway, and if we get funding we hope we get, then we hope to do a lot more about that in the next two or three years. And so did you come across any Titanic songs written by Canadians? Um, no, <laughs> there really aren't any Canadian folk songs about Titanic. No? No, it, it's the best-known song is the one, Oh, it was sad, oh, it was sad, it was sad when the ship went down to the bottom, all the husbands and the wives, all the children lost their lives. It was sad when the great ship went down and the band played Nearer My God to Thee. I, I first heard that at the Queen's Co-op when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto playing in the band, and that's been around for a long time. Yeah. The other The other theme, by the way, is that that this that the the supposedly unsinkable ship was a challenge to the Lord, 
and the Lord wouldn't put up with that, and that shows up in a number of the songs. But the Titanic songs are really largely American, British, you know, Finnish, whatever. I can't think of any any written by a Canadian folk singer about Titanic. And Joe, you also have another project involving Canadian histories that our listeners might be interested in. You're looking at the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-1920? Yeah, well, what got interested, I got interested, first of all, the... Uh, I was I was doing some research. I did some research in the 1917 Halifax explosion, and in the process, I looked at the handling of the dead. But that wasn't my interest. But I heard I attended a lecture by the the medical examiner at Corner. I can't remember the title from Japan who did the Kobe earthquake, and he kept saying all these strange things happened, and they didn't sound strange to me. They sounded like the same thing happened in Halifax. So I got kind of interested in mass death, but I didn't do anything about it. I did so, I did one piece. I published one piece. But what happened when the tsunami, the Indian Ocean tsunami happened, a couple of American colleagues called me and said, have you got any ideas? There's some research funding available. And I said, I suggested a couple of ideas. One of them was I, I was interested in the handling of the dead. And we got funding from the National Science Foundation. And I, I actually went to uh, Israel, France, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, England, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada to look at the overseas response to the handling of the dead in the Indian Ocean tsunami. And we have about nine publications out of that research. It was very interesting research, and it, it really documented what happened. So then we got some SHRC, Social Science and Humanities Research Council, Canadian funding to look at Canadian mass death incidents. And we look at Ocean Ranger and Swiss Air and Air India and the Edmonton Tornado, the Hinton Train Derailment, uh, uh, and, and things like Empress of Ireland, Halifax Explosion, etc., and to some extent, mine deaths in Nova Scotia, which got me to the folk song. Then I got interested. There's a lot of research that suggests in recent books that the handling of the dead was a major problem in the 1918 pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we got shirt funding to look at uh, Kenora, Kitchener, sorry, Kenora, St. Thomas, and Kingston to see how the dead were dealt with during the 1918 pandemic. And we found it wasn't a problem. Uh, it just it didn't stand up. We picked the three communities in Ontario so they'd be in the same province and they'd be separate, but subject to the same provincial regulation. By and large, the dead were buried in 24 to 48 hours, and they just buried them. And the churches were closed, so they got rid of the dead as fast as they could. And usually there was a small graveside service. And we actually found a lot of records from funeral homes and from cemeteries and vital statistics and church records. We got a lot of data, and it really wasn't an issue. We actually published, uh, there's a journal called Mortality, published by the Society for Death, Dying, and Disposal, believe it or not. <laughs> it sounds preposterous, but that's what they really call themselves. And uh, Nicole Marion and I, one of my research, she's now a doctoral student at Carleton, published an article about disease and disease, death and disease. But what we discovered, disease was a problem. The real problem was local, because so many communities were here at the same time, and we've now got a proposal in which we hope will come through to look at the handling of the pandemic because in 1918 there was no federal health department and the provinces, only there was only one provincial minister of health. So there really, it was a local emergency in every community at the same time. And there are large parts of the country that haven't been looked at, uh, mainly Atlantic Canada and Northern Ontario and Eastern Ontario, which are all part of the CPR line where the, where the flu traveled. And secondly, the pandemic struck again in 1920, 
in uh, Port Arthur or Fort William, it was just as bad in 1920 as it was in 1918. And that hasn't been studied at all. And yet by 1920, there was a federal health department and there was a Dominion Council of Health. Mm -hmm. So we have a proposal in with the Canadian Institutes of Health Research to look at the 1918 gaps and to look at 1920 and compare the two and to see whether there's any change in provincial response. Mm -hmm. But I believe that if another pandemic strikes, it will again be a municipal emergency and that federal and provincial resources won't be or not even close to enough to provide help for the municipalities that are going to be struck. And that's really what we want to test to see if that's true. The other thing we found in 1918, which is really interesting, and that is that, uh, first of all, the medical community was part of the war effort, so a lot of doctors and nurses were overseas. But secondly, they include a lot of volunteers, almost entirely women, almost entirely women with no medical training whatsoever, many of them school teachers because the schools were closed. And in those days, most teachers were single women because when women married, they didn't work. And they gave them a couple of hours of lectures and put them in contagion wards. And we published an article on that in uh, one of the American Disaster Medical Journals. And we're into it called Almost Only Women. There were very few men involved and very little training. And some of them got sick and died inevitably. And there was really no preparation except the Voluntary Aid Division of St. John Ambulance had been developed to help with first aid in the event of war. So they had a few people with minimum first aid training. And I, I think there's a lot of questions whether untrained volunteers, A, would be available today because we don't have single women in the schools anymore. I mean, a large proportion of the female population works. Mm -hmm. And secondly, the, well, the other thing that happened in 1918 was women who had retired but had skills were brought back in. For example, in Kenora, the library became an emergency hospital. It was run by the former head nurse of the hospital who married a doctor and retired. But now she wouldn't have retired, so she wouldn't be available. So I think there's going to be some very serious problems in another nationwide pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the problems will be greater if, if different, but greater than the ones they had in 1918. That, that's my perspective. That's what we hope to test. And we've made an application for funding. I'm working with uh, an historian, a public policy person, and with a colleague of mine that I work with at Center for Disease Control who's who's been pushing me to look at the pandemic because there really hasn't been much research. There are books out, but they don't look at it on a Canada-wide or municipal emergency basis. And I, I think it's a very interesting story and one that needs telling in more detail. We've been speaking with Professor Joe Scanlon, a sociologist of disaster and professor emeritus at Carleton University. My name is Joanna Dawson. Thanks for listening to the Canada's History Podcast. <laughs>